Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lister, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you. This is Saturday the 18th of February 2023, and we are carrying on with our Pedagogy 101 series. Today I am looking at constructivism and all of the forms and flavours that we might want to use in our classrooms. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Good morning to you. Thank you, as always, for joining me for breakfast on this lovely Saturday. It is currently 10 degrees in the southwest of England. It is grey and cloudy. It is, as I've said on the show before, my favourite kind of weather. Um, This is the kind of weather that reminds me how important seasonality is. I was talking about this with one of my colleagues quite recently. Um, how nice it is to have the four very distinct seasons. Uh, winter is my favourite by by a wide mile. I adore the winter, um, and and it's it's nice that we have that. And I think that we can only really appreciate the winter um, because we have the spring, summer, and autumn as three distinct phases of time that come before it, and. I've kind of been thinking about phases of time over the past week and how, as I've said before, our time does tend to be um, broken up into these sort of measurable units. Um, As teachers, of course, we have a couple of New Year's each year. We have the one in January along with everybody else. We then have a new New Year in September. You might have a new year in February or March if you are a member of the Chinese community here in Europe, the wide, wide ranging Chinese community. You might have an alternative new year in October if you follow a traditional pagan religion and you continue to use the wheel of the year um, as, as the old cycle has been modified into. So there are all sorts of ways that we have kind of invented, really, to mark the passage of time. And I was thinking yesterday about my my doctorate, my ed and how um, it will probably take me about five years to complete, five calendar years. Um, we have between four and seven to finish it off. Um, I'm aiming for about five. And I was just thinking about kind of what happens in those five years you know obviously the doctorate will be my primary focus but what else is going to happen i will touch wood um also get a master's degree in that time because i am certifiably insane and doing both at the same time um i have actually thought this week about um about postponing my master's and ultimately either cashing it in for a postgrad certificate or 
just postponing and finishing it when the um when the ed d is done but then i got a distinction grade on an assignment this week and i thought oh no it's fine i'll just take it through i can i can do both so we're gonna see how well that works out for me <laughs> excuse me i may change my mind depending on uh, depending on how on how the next assignment goes um we will have well we are currently undergoing a series of educational reforms um the gcses are being revamped we've seen in mfl the uh, the specs for the new one we've got the launch events happening very very soon we are gradually seeing the move to online examinations um some exam boards are already offering those in selected subjects in selected schools and i'll be interested to see whether that becomes a permanent fixture of education over the next five years whether we move away from um paper-based exams to online-based exams in the same way that um that the american system is increasingly using an online basis for its act and sat exams um you know i i've seen that happen in the time that i was the sat center supervisor for my school i watched the college board roll that out and so i'm very interested to see um to see how the uk replicates that and it'll be exciting to see what else happens in in those five years i wonder whether we will still be having breakfast together in five years time who knows who knows i think i must be dwelling a little bit on the concept of time this morning um because the next thing that i kind of want to talk to you about is what happened 350 years ago yesterday um so i've seen a tweet from maison des Long, uh which i will actually retweet right now if you are listening in real time um and it was to mark the 350th uh, anniversary of the death of Molière. Now Molière, for those who don't know, is one of France's most well-known, most beloved playwrights, perhaps the most well-known, most beloved playwright in France. And if there is something that we love here on Teach Talk Radio Saturday morning breakfast show, it is foreign languages and literature. And so I thought it was only right to, um, to mark the passing of Molière, as it happened 350 years ago yesterday. So the tweet from Maison de Long is really nice because it poses the question, why do we call French the language of Molière? Uh, and it provides four very, very interesting, very, very clear reasons. For me, that question can be summed up in a very simple comparison. Uh, I believe that Molière is to French what Shakespeare was to English. Um, and so that's why French is considered the language of Molière, la langue de Molière, as the tweet says. Um, so we're just going to go through the four reasons that Maison des Langues give for why French is the language of Molière, and then we'll see if you, uh, if you agree with my summation. Uh, please do, if you have got any, any thoughts on Molière, any, um, thoughts on anything that we have on the roster to talk about today please do feel free to text in if you are listening via the podbean app we are always happy to um to take your comments you are free to call in 
if you have got something to contribute and you would like to have a chat with me about anything that we are talking about today, or you are free to tweet. I am at Mr. D. Lester, M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word. And I'll be keeping an eye on Twitter if you want to keep in touch that way about the show this morning. So, why is French called the la- uh, yeah the language of Molière? Um, reason number one, according to Maison de Long, is that he was a good student. So they tell us that um, it was during Molière's time that the precise grammar rules of French became established. So, as linguists amongst you will know, up until comparatively recently, languages in general did not have very fixed um, grammar rules. Now, obviously, that's not true of languages like Latin and like Greek, which are kind of known for their grammar. But I will just point out that with those languages, we only know what we know about them because of what was written. We don't know how people spoke. And so it might be that while there were fixed rules in writing that the writers, the playwrights adhered to, that was not the same language that that common people used as they were speaking. But during Molière's time in France, French became grammatically standardised. And so the um, the Académie Française, the, the body responsible for the regulation of the French language, they began to set down very clear rules about word order, about um, grammatical gender agreement, about tenses. And this happened during Molière's time. And so Maison de Long go on to say that Molière was in that first generation who really took hold of the rules that the Académie Française put down. And so he was one of the first playwrights who would have written in a way that could be understood by all French people everywhere. Because ultimately, that is kind of the point of language standardization. We can unpick the big, big issues about colonization, about racism in applying prescriptive rules to language. But one of the the reasons that languages became prescriptive in the first place was to allow for understanding. Because language is all about understanding, it's all about communication. And so the idea behind coming up with very fixed grammar rules is that it facilitates understanding between anybody who speaks that language, regardless of where they come from. Now, the the flip side to that argument and and the side that is um, au courant with contemporary linguists, with modern linguists, is that actually as long as your message is understood, as long as you can communicate what you're trying to say, that's what is important. But of course, the, the the branch off of that is, does a standard form of a language aid that communication? Does it kind of get rid of any, um, any idea of um, confusion, any idea of somebody not understanding what you're trying to say? Now, let's be realistic. If we take an example in English, um, 
in British English, it's very common not to distinguish between I and me. So, you know, people say, oh, me and my friends went down to the shops at the weekend, when it should be my friends and I went down to the shops at the weekend. But the meaning of that sentence is clear. So does it matter that they used an object pronoun instead of a subject pronoun? Not really, because you understand what is trying to be said. But if there was some ambiguity in that, as there can be in, in languages other than English, then perhaps the grammar is more important because the grammar will help to facilitate the message that you're trying to get across. So it is, for me at least, it's a very interesting idea, kind of standardised grammars, standardised rules versus descriptive, this is actually what people say. But again, we have to remember that the whole point of language is communication. The whole point of language is either to express yourself or to help somebody. And as long as you're able to do that, you've got to wonder to what extent um, a very formal, very standard grammar is necessary. But it was in the creation of this grammar in France that Molière grew up, uh, that Molière found himself writing. And so he was one of the first generations of writers who could be understood all across the Francophone world because he was beginning to use these rules that were being set down in order to facilitate that understanding. However, um, he also, and for me, this is where the first of the comparisons between Molière and Shakespeare come into play. He also was very creative with the language. So Pierre Bale, a, um, a lexicographer, said he took a lot of liberties to invent new words and new expressions. He tried to um, escape. He tried to, to run away from anything that was ugly. And of course, that was what Shakespeare did with English. I forget the exact, um, the exact number, so I'm just going to look it up now. But Shakespeare invented a ridiculous amount of English vocabulary. Um, so words such as bandit critic, dauntless, dwindle, to elbow, green-eyed monster, lacklustre, lonely, all words brought into English by Shakespeare. And, uh, and Molière did exactly the same thing with French. He brought new words into the language, he expanded the language. So a lot of things that, uh, that we see as common to French were in fact created by Molière in the same way that a lot of things that we consider to be natives to English were invented by Shakespeare. This coining of words is really important because whenever a new concept is constructed, whenever a new item of technology is invented, there needs to be a word for it. Because does something exist if there is no word in which to describe it? That's us getting very philosophical here. Uh, over breakfast on Saturday morning. But it is these people who invent these words, who come up with these ideas, these analogies, that enrich a language. And, and Molière did that in exactly the same way that Shakespeare did in English. The third reason that Maison des Longs say French should be considered or is considered the language of Molière is that he allowed 
people from all strata of French society to uh, take center stage. So his plays are incredibly diverse in terms of who is represented uh, and who takes a protagonist role. Um, he also wrote in all sorts of different registers in that way. So from very high formal French down to the, the very um, lax spoken dialects from the countryside. Uh, and he wrote for all kinds of accent and dialect as well. So we actually can tell a lot of what the French language was like 400 years ago by studying the plays of Moliere. And what actually is very interesting for me um, is that the French of Moliere is just as understandable as modern French is. It, there are only a few differences between Moliere's French and, and modern French. And so what you end up seeing is a what feels like a contemporary society represented in Moliere's plays. Um, it's, it's really very interesting, but it was that, um, that representation of all types of French people that really kind of allowed his use of French to expand because it did introduce high society to the French that was spoken in the countryside, in the deep south, wherever it might have been that they may not have visited before and of course, vice versa. Reason number four, which I think is a reason we overlook in many, many success stories. Um, the Maison des Longues says, il a eu de la chance, he got lucky. So during the time of Molière, French was the, um, the lingua franca of Europe. French was the language that it was presumed everybody spoke in the same way that you will hear people today say, oh, everybody speaks English. So French was spoken um, across Europe, which meant that his plays were able to be performed across Europe. And so that made him probably not a household name across the entirety of Europe, but certainly a very important player in European literary society during this time, which in turn allowed the diffusion and the expansion of his French. So, you know, as, as a, a member of the court in Russia, in England, in um, the German kingdoms, wherever it might have been, you spoke French, you learned French, so that you could communicate on a political level, you would then go and watch a Moliere play and you would pick up the standardized grammar, the new vocabulary that was being invented. It was how you kept current with it in the same way that I tell my students, oh, watch something on Netflix, listen to a podcast, um, follow an influencer. And so what ended up happening was Moliere's French, the way that he used the language, the way that he manipulated the language, became the French that was commonly seen among non-native speakers and that started to be used among non-native speakers. And as we're seeing with English at the moment, the way that non-natives use a language often has more impact than the way natives use a language because non-native speakers quite often outnumber 
native speakers of any given language. So that's it. Those are the four reasons why French can, should be considered the language of Moliere. He grew up while French was changing, while French was being solidified into the language that it is now. He got creative with the language. He coined new words and phrases. He represented a diverse cross-section of French life, and he was lucky. He was in the right place at the right time. Like, actually, I think all of those, um, all of those aspects have an aspect of being in the right place at the right time, of getting lucky. Uh, Duke James has texted in to say good morning. Good morning to you. I hope that you are enjoying the show today. Um, that was our little interlude on Moliere. If you're not familiar with Moliere's works, um, I, I do strongly recommend that you check them out. Um, they are because, of course, he is a well-known uh, playwright. They are available translated into all sorts of languages, including English. Um, if you do not speak French, my favourite, if you want a recommendation, is um, La Malade Imaginaire, the hypochondriac. Um, I saw it. In the last time I saw it was about 10 years ago. Tony Robinson um, played the main part in that in that role, Algon. But and essentially it is a, it's a, a very simple play about a man, Algon, who is a severe hypochondriac. Uh, he's going through his doctor's bills, uh, his pharmacist's bills, I'm sorry. Um, and he is outraged at the amount of money that he is being charged for his medicines. Uh, and and it's kind of just a slice of life of what happens to him. Well worth seeing if you can see it. Well worth reading if you can get hold of it. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. STV reports that a council in Scotland could become the first to open schools for four days per week. According to the report, West Dunbartonshire Council is currently considering the proposals alongside a range of other measures as part of a bid to plug a £15 million funding gap. Currently, primary schools in the county are open to pupils from 9am to 3pm each day, with secondary schools running an asymmetric week with seven periods on Mondays and Tuesdays and six periods daily Wednesday to Friday. The new proposals would see primaries open Monday to Thursday with hours of 8.30am to 3.45pm and secondary schools running an eight-period day, Monday to Thursday, beginning at 8.20am and ending at 4.10pm. The plans were shared with parents and are for the 2023-24 20, to 24 academic year. 
The other proposals being considered for education across the council are a reduction in the number of learning assistants, a review of grants for uniform, removal of breakfast clubs in primary schools and swimming lessons for pupils in primary four. Western Bartonshire Council says the plans would have no impact on teaching time or teacher numbers, but that savings would be made in costs for transport and energy usage. It does acknowledge that the proposals may impact upon childcare arrangements for parents and that consideration must be given to support vulnerable children. Plans for fifth date provision for those children is being explored. The plans are likely to find favour with unions as during June 2022's AGM for Education Institute Scotland, delegates backed a motion calling for a move to a four-day week, stating that it could improve the standard of teacher wellbeing. There is some concern, however, on the possible impact of the sort of move on those with non-teaching roles in schools. The Council will consider proposals during a meeting on March 1st, 2023, before any further steps to consultation can be taken. The Channel Island of Guernsey has released the finding of its latest Young People Survey. The results seem to indicate that vaping in schools is on the rise and that there has been an increase in bullying reports amongst children in Year 8 and Year 10. In better news, 40% of pupils surveyed believe their school now takes bullying seriously, a significant increase in the 26% figure from 2019. There has also been a significant uplift in the numbers of young people who cycle or walk to school, from 26% in the 2016 survey to 40% in 2022. Year 6 pupils walk or cycle the most. In terms of health, 40% of those surveyed admitted to trying vaping, although cigarette usage was down at only 15%. More Year 10 girls vape than Year 10 boys. The survey is completed every three years. Finally, Sir David Attenborough has praised Sunderland University's decision to join BAFTA's Albert Education Partnership to teach students the importance of creating sustainable content. Students on Sunderland's MA Media Production Programme will benefit from teaching on topics such as the science of climate change, the environmental impact of the film and TV industries, sustainable pro production practices and creating content with strategic environmental purpose. Sir David said that saving the planet is now a communications challenge. Whilst Gary Stubbs, leader of the MA programme at Sunderland, said the university's film and TV department is set to take green issues to task. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. I will be following the news of the four-day week with interest because I cannot see, honestly, how that will be ratified with parents, particularly because with the introduction of fifth day provision for students whose parents need childcare, that essentially nullifies the savings that will be made by um, or be made in energy costs and transport because children will still be taken to school um, in order to be babysat on that fifth day. I will also be interested to know who will be expected to provide that fifth day provision because of course the extended school days will mean that teachers are cramming their contact time into four days instead of five and so would have no obligation to um, have contact time on that Friday 
to deliver that fifth day provision. So I will be really interested to see who is expected to deliver that, whether it is, um, well, I was about to say whether it would be the, the TAs, but then of course, if we're also having a reduction in number of TAs, then there, there won't be so many available to do that. Um, whether it will be maybe private care providers, child minders, I suppose could be could be drafted in to run that. It would be very interesting. I'll be interested to see on a logistical level how it works. I also have concerns about workload and teacher well-being in that regard. I understand that the idea of having a fifth day off, if you like, a, a Friday off, um, well, one assumes it would be Friday, it could be a Wednesday, um, would um, would give you more time for planning and prep. But what it actually means is that if you've got, let's say, a class in secondary, if you've got a class on a Monday and you see them again on the Tuesday and you need to use your Monday lesson to inform your planning for your Tuesday lesson, you actually have reduced time to work on that because you are working later on the Monday evening. Um, and of course, in primary, where you are with your class all day, every day, and things like maths and English, quite often, while you have your weekly plan, you do need to make those tweaks and you need to get those books marked for the next day. Um, I remember that all too well, having to prioritise my marking of maths and English because they had those every single day. So those books needed to be marked. That's going to be a later finish at school, which means a later time spent marking so i don't know i don't know i will be interested to see what happens um be interested to see whether it takes off the point of our show today is cognitivist theories that's what we are looking at we looked last week at behaviorism i'm running a little um a kind of mini uh mini series on on Pedagogy 101, we're calling it. Um, so last week we looked at behaviorist theories. Um, we looked at Thorndike, we looked at Skinner, and the, the big impact that that's had on the US education system. So please do go and check out last week's show if you are interested in behaviorism um, and would like to hear my thoughts on it. Today we're gonna to look at cognitivist theories. So that suggests that learning is an internal process which is associated with um, the linking of prior knowledge to new information which helps for knowledge to become organized and for memory to be reinforced. It breaks down into the input which is the receiving information so that's the traditional children sit down in their seats. They listen to me as I teach talk five minutes about whatever it is our lesson is about. Then there is the process, which is the encoding, the, the translation of information into a form which is meaningful for them. So in this case, this would be right. I've listened to Mr. Lester speak for five minutes about conjugating verbs. I'm now going to go away and have a go at doing it myself so that I get used to it, so that I can really have that experiential understanding of how verb conjugation works. 
Uh, and then there is the output, which is the retrieval. So that is understanding that in a few weeks time, I'm going to have to write a passage about what I did last weekend. And that's going to require me conjugating my verbs into the past tense. So under a cognitivist paradigm, learning is a meaning making process where each learner creates, constructs their own meaning of experiences. This was, um, in full disclosure, this was how I was trained as a teacher. I was trained to be a social constructivist. Um, I was talking with another teacher earlier this week, uh, and he said that he was trained in the same way. So I think a lot of teachers kind of of my age and with slightly way either way, um, were probably trained in very similar theories. So this is kind of what we were taught to take as read as learning. This idea that I have the information already as the teacher, I transmit that information to you and I then provide you opportunities to cement that information yourself. And this was, as, a, as an early teacher, this is where I received a lot of critique in my observations was the idea that I wasn't giving children enough time to create the meaning for themselves. I was too busy trying to transmit to the children um, instead of allowing them to go off and, and figure it out. I mean, who would have guessed me being able to sit and talk to a, a captive audience for an hour? Um, I know that it's unimaginable for most of you. <laughs> but that in a nutshell is what cognitive cognitivist theory boils down to. Learning is a search for meaning. Meaning requires understanding of the whole as well as the individual parts. And as teachers, we then need to understand the constructions, the constructs that children use and the assumptions that they make. So this is where all of the um, predicting the questions that your children are going to ask, figuring out their misconceptions and how to preempt them. That's not always easy. Again, back when I was a primary school teacher, I will never forget the time a child told me that a pencil was a liquid. We were studying states of matter. I think I've told this story on the show before. We were studying states of matter, looking at um, solids, liquids and gases, I was at the end of the lesson, we were doing the plenary, I was just picking things at random and asking children whether they were a solid, a liquid or a gas. And year five girl, about nine years old, I chose her to answer my question. The thing that I picked was pencil and she told me it was a liquid. And I said to her, no, 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 it, it, it's a solid. Look, and we talked about the differences between solids and liquids. We talked about how, you know, solids maintain their shape, whereas liquids take on the shape of the container they're in. And that was when I realized her misunderstanding because she said to me, no, look at the pencils in your pot, they're in a circle. Because the group of pencils themselves had taken on the circular shape of a pot. So in her mind, that meant that they were a liquid because they had taken on the shape of the container because that's what I said liquids did. And I will I'll never forget the shocked look on her face when I took one pencil out of my um, out of my pencil pot. 
I dropped it into the sink and it didn't take the shape of the sink. It stayed in the shape of the pencil. And she was honestly shocked that a pencil was a solid and not a liquid. Um, so sometimes we can't always preempt those assumptions. I would never, ever in a million years have guessed that a student would tell me that a pencil was a liquid. But her reasoning was sound. She was doing exactly what I had wanted her to do using her own knowledge, using her own insight, using her own experience of the world to tell me whether she thought pencils were solids, liquids or gases. And she just came up with an answer that I would have never predicted. So we can't always do that. But quite often, particularly when you've been teaching for a while, um, you are you are able to do that. Students have to construct their own meaning rather than memorise the right answers. Uh, Maddie has just texted in, how old was she? She was nine years old. She was nine years old. Now, at the time, I was a primary teacher. Um, so I taught exclusively from the ages of four to 11. So for me, at that point, she was one of my older ones. Um you know, if I'd had that in reception, if I had that from a four-year-old child, then I probably wouldn't have been so shocked. Uh, but at that point, I thought, oh, well, you're nine, you should you should know this. And of course, now my perception of nine years old has changed quite a lot, having moved into secondary schools. Um, I now have a much better understanding of exactly how young nine years old is. Um, good morning to you. Though, Maddie, I'm glad that you have texted down. I'm glad that you are joining us today. So, yeah, it these cognitivist approaches, these constructivist approaches, they come away from the idea that we are the teachers and we are transmitting the knowledge directly from our brains into the students' brains through our speech. And they give into the idea that students actually have to figure it out for themselves. And these models, I know they come back around and around and around. We always have to make students do something in class. We always get them to do worksheets or read books or whatever it might be. And we need to think about what is a proxy for learning. We need to think about what makes an inspector or a member of the leadership team who might walk into your classroom happy because the child is sitting and doing something quietly versus what is actually learning versus giving them that experience versus seeing firsthand what it is you have just told them to be true. The three um, theorists who are uh, who were the drivers of a cognitivist theory, were Piaget, who was active between the 1920s until the 1970s, Vygotsky, who was active in the 1920s to the 1930s, but he didn't get translated into English until the 60s, and so that's kind of when his theories took off in the Anglophone, Anglophone sphere, and then Brunner who was active from the 50s until the 90s. I'm sure lots of teachers my age are now having uh, B.Ed. PGCE flashbacks at hearing those names. Jean Piaget. Yes, Maddie, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Jean Piaget has largely been discredited 
as a as an educationalist because again of so many of the ethical quandaries that crop up around his work so unfortunately when so many of the educational theorists that we study were conducting their experiments there was not the same regard for children and there were not the same ethical um, restrictions that we have in modern um, in, in, in modern pedagogical study. So what that means is quite often we can read some of these studies firsthand, we can read the reports that these people wrote and cringe because we understand that a lot of our understanding of education comes from experiments that would not fly these days and maybe shouldn't have flown back in the day when they were being con uh, conducted. But they are still what we tend to build so many of our educational theories around, and so it is important to interrogate them. Uh, so I'm going to make it clear at this point that I do not condone um, any of the um, any of the experiments that our our psychologists conducted. I am just reporting on what their findings were since they happened. So Piaget, Jean Piaget, was a Swiss psychologist, and his work focused on understanding a child's cognitive development, how the brain developed. Uh, his his is the most widely known theory of cognitive development, and he was really interested in the thoughts and behaviours of children. He was interested in figuring out how and why children behaved and acted as they did. He was an incredibly precocious person. He published his first academic paper at 10 years old. Um, he wrote about mollusks. As a result of his mollusk research, he was actually asked to be the curator of mollusks at a museum in Geneva, but he turned that offer down so that he could finish secondary school. <laughs> he became a doctor of natural scientists when he was 21 years old. And that was when he began to study psychology and applied uh, intelligence tests to school children. So you have to wonder whether his own background, his own um, over-intelligence, I suppose, contributed to his curiosity about children, to, to whether other children thought and saw the world in the same way that he did. He is credited for being the founder of constructivism, and constructivism has had a huge influence on schools, particularly in the US and the UK. So social, uh, so constructivism, I'm sorry, constructivism is the assumption that learning is the active process, that meaning is constructed, that knowledge is built, instead of the passive absorption of knowledge or rote memorization. So in a constructivist paradigm, children are responsible for building their own understanding, for building their own knowledge. They don't just absorb it like a sponge. If they absorbed it like a sponge, our jobs would be so much easier. And I am actually, 
interested in how teachers kind of pre-constructivism, how they explained children not learning something. Because under other paradigms, the idea would be that as the teacher we spoke, the child listened, and they just assimilated that information. And so I would be interested to read ideas of how um, of how they thought, how they explained children who then didn't learn in that way. Oh, Maddie, your, your experience sounds really interesting. So Maddie said that she has five years experience teaching children and then eight of teaching adults. Do you think that there is a big difference between the two? Because um, I've come from having five year experience um, teaching very young children up to now 11 years of experience teaching older children. So, you know, from four years old to 18 years old. And for me, it's the same. They are the same skills. It's the same idea. Um, it's even the same explanations. It's just the way in which I pitch things is slightly different. So I'm always interested to know what people think is the difference between children and adults. <laughs> Teaching children is more difficult. Okay, I I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I can also see that. I can also see that. As somebody who is interested in, in motivation, uh, we're going off on a bit of a tangent now, but I am interested in motivation and the impact of motivation on learning. Uh, and I often think that adults who learn are often there because either they choose to be as a hobby or they have to be for their job, depending on what kind of teaching you're doing. And so they kind of have that that mix of an intrinsic motivation if they're interested or a very important extrinsic motivation. I need this for my job. Um, that will keep them motivated. Whereas children, of course, very young children are often interested. They're curious about the world. But as children get older, they begin to lose that curiosity quite often. And they are in class because they have to be. Uh, and so that can be where it can be difficult to find the um, to find the motivation to, to prompt them. Yes, this is also true. So Maddie has also pointed out that you, we need as teachers to be careful about their emotional state as well as their learning. And that's true. That's very true. Um, I, I read something once about why toddlers always seem to overreact to everything. Why is skimming your knee the most painful thing in the world when you're three years old? Um, and the paper quite rightly pointed out because it probably is the most painful, the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to them. And so children find emotional regulation difficult because quite often they are processing these emotions for the first time. They've never had to regulate them before because they've never had them before. Whereas with adults, you know, they can take setbacks, they can understand getting something wrong a lot better because it has happened to them before. They've had that experience to regulate, to process. So I think in that way as well, we, we probably have to be a bit more conscious towards children's motivations. But I also think we shouldn't necessarily assume that adults are regulating their emotions any better 
because if you I would imagine if you have a class of adults and somebody is going through a particularly nasty divorce, they might be better able to kind of keep a lid on it um, in class compared to the 14 year old who has just broken up with their first boyfriend or girlfriend. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be any more focused. Um, and you kind of have to, I would imagine, you kind of have to um, take that into account too. It's very interesting. Maddie, maybe one day I could have you as a, a guest on the show and we could talk about the differences between teaching children and teaching adults. Um, I think that would be a really interesting conversation for us to have. Um, if you are able to, please reach out to me on Twitter, at uh, Mr. D. Lester. And if you're interested, we can... Um, we can bring this conversation onto the air. I think that would be very cool. But don't worry if you're not. It's fine. There is no there is no pressure. There is no pressure at all. That's fine. If if you do not feel confident with your English, that is absolutely okay. Although I will say that I think your English is very good um, from what you are texting in. So um so don't uh, don't downplay your English. Um I'm finding you, as as I was talking about when we were talking about Molière at the top, the point is to understand, the point is to communicate, and I am understanding exactly what you're saying. So that's absolutely fine. That is absolutely fine. Vygotsky, uh, in 1936, he wrote about Piaget, uh, and he said, this, this quote is cited by Anglia Ruskin University, he said, psychology owes a great deal to Jean Piaget. It is not an exaggeration to say that he revolutionized the study of child's speech and thought. He developed the clinical method for exploring children's ideas that has since been widely used. He was the first to investigate the child's perception and logic systematically. Moreover, he brought to his subject a fresh approach of unusual amplitude and boldness. Now, of course, the idea of childhood is a relatively new construction. We like to say that in the English-speaking world, the teenager was invented in the 1950s and the 1960s, because before then, you just went from being a child to being an adult. But of course, being a child and the whole concept of childhood, that was, that's a post-Victorian construction. Before that, children were just seen as adults, but smaller. So, of course, anything that we assume to know about children has only been really researched in the last hundred-ish years, because that's been the time in which childhood as a separate construct from adulthood has existed. So that does mean that people like Jean Piaget, when they were doing their research, they were really on the forefront of this because they were the first people to go, well, if childhood is a separate time to adulthood, then there will be separate ways of children understanding things. There will be separate ways that they perceive things. And I think one of the, one of the ways that we've done ourselves a disservice is to kind of take what Piaget, Vygotsky, Bruner, Skinner have all said as read, and not continue to explore that further, because I think there probably are more differences between adult and child psychology um, than, than we would like to admit right now. The key facets, the key areas, the key foci 
of Piaget's um, cognitive theory boil down to the idea of schemata, which are innate and acquired, these constructions of learning. Children need to be actively engaged in the learning process, which I think is probably true of adults as well, to be fair. The cognitive structures need to change. We'll talk about the cognitive structures in a few minutes. And we need to take into account the developmental stage of children. So if we take Jean Piaget's theory as read, this comes back to kind of what Maddie was saying just now about the differences between children and adults. Because children go through their stages of development and they change as they become more active participants in their learning. Whereas adults have been through those stages and they are already active participants. And in fact, Maddie has just texted in and, and kind of supported what I've just said, which is always a relief for me. Um, she says, when an adult takes part in my class, he or she knows what is happening and what his or whole hit, eh, sorry, his or her goal of that participation is. But children do not. They take part in classes not of their own accord, which is absolutely true. Children come to class because they have to they're told to. It's the law, they're being sent there by their parents, whatever it might be. Whereas, as we were saying before, adults are there because more often not they choose to, or they have that extrinsic motivation. I need to take this class to get promotion, I need to take this class to keep my job. The schemata, as I've said, are how you understand the world, how you categorize knowledge. So in linguistics, the theory of schemata is actually quite easy to, uh, to explain. You have a schema of a bird. And what I'd like to do now, a little experiment, I want you to picture a bird. When I say the English word bird, what do you picture? Everything that you are picturing is part of your schema for bird. So what you were probably picturing was an animal with wings and feathers and a beak and talons. Okay, that's your schema for bird. And then in linguistics, we would say that all of that vocabulary, so talon, beak, feather, wing, that's all part of the schema for bird. So that's, a, in a nutshell, how schemata work. They are your um, categories of knowledge. They are your representations of a perception of an idea. Schema are either innate they are um, a part of you, they are emotional, they are a reflex, or they are learnt, which means that they can change. And it's that changing of schemata that is kind of at the core of constructivist theory. Because when you take a child who is, let's say, five years old, and you talk to them about their schema of a bird, 
then they would probably say that it flies because for a lot of them, their only experience of birds will be flying birds, seagulls, pigeons, magpies, whatever it might be. You then teach them about penguins and their schema changes slightly because they then realize that there are birds that can't fly. Penguins still have feathers, they still have beaks, they still have all those other parts of that schema. But we are now taking away the flight bit, or we're adjusting it to say flight is representative of some birds, but not all. So again, that's just a very simple example, but that is essentially how schema work. And in a constructivist paradigm, we are changing the schema in order to help children to learn. We then have two main states. Piaget told us that there are two main states of learning, which are called uh, equilibrium and disequilibrium. And essentially he believes that we are driven or motivated to learn when we are in disequilibrium. Piaget comes from a place, uh, Piaget's core belief was we want to understand. He believed that there is a, an innate desire within human beings to understand things. So when we are assimilating a concept, we match the external reality to our existing understanding. So again, I'm going to keep my idea of birds. I'm not sure why I'm fixated on birds there. I think because it's quite a, an easy way to explain schema. Um, but I do remember doing a project on birds when I was in year two. So that might... Uh, that might have prompted it as well. But anyway, when we teach about birds, you know, and we're teaching children all different words for birds, all the different species of birds, and we go blackbird, sparrow, woodpecker, and we show them the pictures, and they can match what they're seeing, what they're hearing to their schema of a bird, because it's got a beak, it's got wings, it flies, whatever that might be. We then show them the, the penguin, and there is the inconsistency between the learner's cognitive structure, so what the learner already believes, and the thing that's being learnt. So now the child is being challenged because they're seeing a bird that doesn't fly, and they've got to accommodate that into their schema because they are experiencing the fact, fact that this thing exists, and so they need to modify their, um, their schema to, to absorb that, to take that into account. That process is called accommodation. Um, Maddie, my name is Darren. D-A-R-R-E-N, Darren. So... The idea behind the accommodation is that's the point where the child will reorganize their thoughts and they will take on this new concept and that's learning. 
So learning boils down to that reframing of the schema, that adaptation of what they knew to be true before and what they know to be true now. And they know it to be true through their own construction of that knowledge, their own experience of that knowledge. Of course, this also, and this is where Piaget's theories do become very complicated because so much needs to overlap. This also has a lot to do with the stages of cognitive development. So Piaget asserted that a child's ability to understand things is based on the developmental stage that they're in. And that a child can't understand something that is beyond their stage of development. And he roughly categorized four stages of development based on age. So he said that there is the sensory motor stage, which is from birth until two. The pre-operational stage from two until seven. The concrete operational stage from seven until 11. And then the formal operation stage from 12 until 13. Uh, yes, Mandy, please do ask your question. If I'm able to answer it, I will be happy to. Um, and if I don't have an answer, I'll put it out to the community and I'm sure that somebody will. Um, and so Piaget said that you go through all four of those stages. The ages, he um, he said, could change. So sensory motor might be from birth until one and a half instead of birth to two. But you progress through them in the same order. So it's always going to be sensory motor into pre-operational, into concrete operational, into formal operational. Um, okay, Maddie's just asked a very good question um, that I will answer before we carry on with Piaget. So Maddie has said, if you face a very, very rude, impolite child in your class, what do you do? How do you react? Now, of course, this is a very personal um, response because all teachers have their own um, their own understandings of behaviour management, and a lot will depend on what your school policies have in place. Um, if a child were to be deliberately rude to me, um, and it was entirely unnecessary my school actually has a very specific sanction policy for that so in my school children are punished essentially for rudeness to adults for lack of respect um, we have something in our internal system where we register that a child was rude I personally would explain to the child that they have been rude to make sure that they understand because of course not not all children do understand that they've been rude. Uh, children don't always understand social constructs in the same way that we do. Um, so I have had um, instances of children being rude to me before. I've pointed out to them that they were being rude and they were mortified because they didn't understand. They were speaking to me in the same way that they speak to other adults in their lives and they didn't realise that that was not appropriate. So in that case, I let those go. Um, I just said, okay... 
well, now you know you've apologised to me. You now understand that that's not how we talk to people. So that's okay. We can move on. Uh, but if it's deliberate, then, as I said, my school has something on our behaviour system where we log that rudeness and then a senior member of staff is alerted. One of the deputy heads or the head is alerted or the head of house um, and they then will deal with the child. Because I think if a child has been specifically rude to you, then you shouldn't need to deal with that yourself because of the um, because of the feelings involved. I think, you know, it is possible, and I think we should recognise that when children are rude to us, it hurts our feelings. Um, and I think it is then appropriate for somebody else to deal with that to make sure that there is still that professional boundary in place. If a child is rude to another member of the class, depending on the age of the child, I would have either a conversation with me as a mediator and those two children, or I would have a conversation with the class as a whole about class dynamics and about how we need to make sure that we are polite to each other, um, that we are nice to each other in order to uh, get on. Okay, so if the child were four or five, I would maybe use that as an opportunity for a circle time. So I would get all of the class to sit in a circle and I wouldn't point out that the, the, the child, let's call him Mathieu, I wouldn't point out that Mathieu had been rude, but I would say, okay, everybody, we're now going to have a quick conversation about why it's important to be polite. And I would just take them through, maybe tell them a story, um, whatever it might be, to make sure that they understand why we need to be nice to each other. And then I think if it's persistent, um, and, and Mathieu is rude all of the time, then you would maybe have a conversation with the parent and just be like, look, just so as you know, this is going on. Uh, Mathieu doesn't seem to be responding to anything that I'm saying. Maybe you need to have a chat with him. Oh, you are very welcome. Adi, you are very welcome. And if anybody else in the community um, has any ideas uh, any other suggestions of what they might do, please do um, do either text in or or call in and uh, we will be more than happy to um, to add to Maddie's list of, of of things that we could do. I think ultimately it comes down to and it's kind of like we were talking about before with the uh, with the assimilation. You know, the child, Mathieu, he has his schema of what is appropriate, of what is okay for him to do, that when he's angry because you've told him to put his toys away and he doesn't want to, it's okay to express his anger by being unkind. And we then kind of have to teach him that that isn't okay. And we have to let him assimilate that new learning. It, it's all a learning experience. I think. Okay. Going back to Piaget's four stages. So sensory motor, pre-operational, concrete operational, and formal operational. 
Each stage has its own um, sequence. Each stage has its own criteria, almost, its own features. So the sensory motor stage, that birth to approximately two years old, that's rapid development in a child's life. If you think about the difference between a child who is two minutes old versus a child who is two years old, they are like two completely different species. Um, that is probably the most rapid development in anybody's life. So during this point, during this time, uh, the child will um, explore the world through their senses and their motor activity. Okay, so a child at this stage will try and put anything that they can grab into their mouth because it's the sense of taste that is strongest to them and that's how they will try and explore. The moment they can crawl, they are off everywhere because they want to see everything. Very early in the sensory motor stage, the, the child cannot tell the difference between themselves and the environment. They don't understand that things around them are not part of them. There's the idea that if they can't see something, then it doesn't exist. Oh, Maddie, it's been so lovely to have you here. Uh, Maddie texted in her appreciation for the show. I appreciate that you've been here. I'm here every Saturday morning. So if you get the opportunity to come back in future, please do. I've really enjoyed your engagement today. Have a great weekend. Um, so yeah, the, the baby, if they can't see something, then they think it doesn't exist. Quite how Piaget discovered that, I don't know. Um, but that's what we're told sensory motor stage contains. Um, as they move towards two years old, they begin to understand cause and effect. They begin to understand that if they grab at the cat's fur, then the cat won't like it and might bat at their hand. And they begin to be able to follow things with their eyes. So everything is very sense-oriented during the sensory motor stage. Pre-operational stage is a very, another big gap between about two years old to about seven years old. So we are thinking now from nursery age children right through to kind of year two, year three age children. And again, if you think of that gap between two and seven, if you put a two-year-old next to a seven-year-old, that is also a huge change in the child's development. So they begin to communicate through speech. It's at this stage that they can imagine the future. They understand that there are things that are going to happen. They can reflect on the past at this point, but children still don't necessarily understand the concept of how long ago something was. They don't understand that, um, for example, I wasn't at school with their grandparents because we're not to the same age. They're developing basic numerical skills. So their, their maths is developing. That's why maths and literacy are so, um, make up such a big part of the primary curriculum because they're going through this pre-operational stage where they are developing those skills. They're still quite egocentric. The world still revolves around them. 
but they are better able to delay gratification. So with those children, particularly as they get towards the six and seven, you can start doing things like if you sit and listen now, you will get your golden time on Friday. That will start to work for them because they understand that Friday is going to come and they will get their reward then. They don't understand conservation of matter. They don't understand that um, getting rid of something, destroying something means that it's gone necessarily. And at the younger age of that range, they have difficulty distinguishing fantasy from reality. So they don't always understand that um, people, uh, that characters in a cartoon are not real people. And this is why there is so much interest in the books that children read during that stage, because they will be attached to those characters. They will look up to them as role models. They might even try and emulate those characters because they think they're real and that's how they want to be. In the concrete operational stage, this is this is junior school now. This is... Um, key stage two. So from about seven years old to about 11 years old, the abstract reasoning skills are beginning to develop and their ability to generalize increases. So going back to my, my bird schema example, they are now able, they understand that penguins are birds even though they can't fly. And they're now able to generalize that out and go, okay, well, there could be lots of things that are birds because they've got beaks and feathers and talons, but they don't fly. So that's the stage at which the schema can change in the abstract. They don't necessarily need to see the things in order to be able to learn them. They can also better understand conservation of matter. So they can, um, they can understand, for example, if I take a cup full of water, it looks full. If I pour my cup full of water into a swimming pool, it's still the same amount of water. It's just the container is bigger, so it looks less. So they can understand that. They understand that mass doesn't necessarily change just because the container does. And we've got the formal operation stage from 12 to 15. So this is now when we are in our key stage three, key stage four, year seven to year 10, year 11 age. At this stage, children should be able to think about hypothetical situations. They should be able to form tests and hypotheses. So this is why science becomes much more embedded in the curriculum at upper key stage two into key stage three, because this is now where they no longer have to go and explore the science for themselves by playing with cars on the carpet versus cars on the hall lino to test friction. But they can come up with ideas for themselves based on what they've experienced because they've experienced more. So they can draw on their 12 years to come up with different ideas rather than the four years that a reception child has to draw on. They can organize information and they can reason scientifically. What's interesting though about Piaget's um, stages is that they end at 15. 
So theoretically for Piaget, 15 years old was the point where you stop being a child and you start being an adult because you've moved through your operational stages. Of course, modern science suggests that our brain continues to develop and doesn't actually become mature, doesn't become fixed until 25. So we've now got this whole chunk of learning time, particularly in the UK now, where it's compulsory to be in education of some kind until you're 18. So we've got three years which are unaccounted for under Piaget's model. And, and this is where it begins to fall apart ever so slightly if you are taking just Piaget on his own as, um, as what we need to be teaching, as how we need to be teaching. To move through the models, Piaget said that you interact with the environment. The more interaction you have with your environment, the more you move through the different stages. Changes from stage to stage will be abrupt and children will differ in how long they are in each stage. So you could have a class of children who are all the same chronological age, but could be in different stages. And that's where your lesson differentiation would come in. Piaget also believed that cognitive change only happens after biological growth occurs. So Piaget believed that the physical change happened first, then the cognitive change happens. And that's something I think that quite often gets ignored in modern teaching. Um, I've heard it a lot from parents, not ever from teachers, but a lot from parents who have said to me, oh, because my 13 year old son is really tall, people think he's much more mature than he actually is. And I think quite often we forget that particularly in the teenage years, children do undergo rapid biological change, but their brains don't always catch up with that. And so while they may start to look like adults, they haven't necessarily moved through those stages of cognitive development yet. And we need to remember that. Cognitive change happens after biological change has happened, according to Piaget. It is that development that leads to learning. So Piaget ultimately believed that we have an innate desire to change. We have an innate desire to get better. This kind of loops back to what Maddie mentioned earlier about, um, about motivation. She texted in and said that, you know, for young children, the motivation must come from the teacher because they don't necessarily have that desire themselves. Piaget would disagree with that. And he would say that we all have an internal drive to develop, an internal drive to change, but that we can only learn what is appropriate for our developmental stage. And so any lessons that attempt to be taught outside of that developmental stage, you know, if you try and do a very abstract um, hypothetical science lesson with a child who is six years old, that child won't understand because they don't have that ability to reason scientifically. Environmental factors, according to Piaget, influence but do not direct development. That development cannot be controlled, it cannot be um, kick-started, it just happens. 
but development does happen through interaction with the social environment. It's that social constructivism coming back into play. The issues that occur around Piaget's theories are that children will often grasp ideas faster than Piaget believed. The modern thinking is that cognitive development is inconsistent, which is true. You know, I have always been a much better reader than I am a mathematician. I could manipulate words much earlier than I can manipulate numbers. And some studies, I've, I've not read these studies, but from the reading that I've done to prepare for the show, some studies have shown that development can be accelerated to a certain degree. And this, of course, has a big impact on the US school system, where American schools will try to teach at a higher stage than the child is in, in order to accelerate that development. The idea of teach to the top, because the others will come up with them. And so there is currently in scientific thought, some merit to that. So that's why we can't just take Piaget's theories in a vacuum and go, well, I'm a Piagetist. I believe purely in um, his constructivist theory. And so that's how I'm going to teach my lessons. And actually, to be honest, I think that it's very dangerous if you are a subscriber to just one specific theorist or one specific theory because brains are complicated, people are complicated. And what it comes down to is our classrooms are filled with 30 individual people who are all at different stages of all sorts of developments, who come to us with all sorts of different um, backgrounds, who have all sorts of different perceptions of the world. And so we'll internalize the lessons that we teach differently. Again, if it were true that purely allowing a child to see something for themselves would have them learn that, there wouldn't actually be any need for teachers at all. What we could do is just set up schools to be massive playgrounds, essentially with all sorts of resources for children to have access to. And as they play, they learn. And we could take the learning through play model that we have down in the EYFS, the early years foundation stage, and apply that all the way up to 18 years old. And there would then just be adults there to facilitate that. Um, I, I suppose kind of like the Steiner model is But the question arises, do we need somebody who has that extra stage of knowledge to be there to transmit that knowledge to children? Can I trust that giving a class a piece of text in French and them analysing it will help them to realise how French works, will help them to realise how the adjectives are agreeing, how the tenses are being formed? 
Or does that need somebody to explain it to them? And then they go and experience it first. I think there needs to be that balance, personally. I think that the children need somebody to tell them what happens. And then they can fact check it. And that's quite often how I, I put it to my children. I say, right, I've just told you this thing is true. You believe me because I'm the teacher. It's probably quite dangerous for you to just blindly believe something that I say. So here is an activity. Try it out for yourself. And maybe that's the best way to do it. Or maybe I'm just trying to justify my job. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's all too interesting. And if there were an answer to this, I would have hoped that at some point in the last hundred years, since we made that um, that discovery, if you like, that childhood is separate from adulthood, then we would have come up with the answer. Maybe there is an answer and we just haven't found it yet. Um, but there is something to me that's quite appealing about the idea of there not being an answer and that we just keep looking and we keep trying to find out what is best for these children. But ultimately today, I'm going to kind of draw it to an end. I'm only halfway through my notes. So I think what we'll do is we will carry on talking about cognitivism, constructivism, social constructivism next week. Um, because I don't want to have, have wasted all of these notes that I've made. Um, but ultimately, what, uh, what today is brought down to is, is understanding the difference between all of these different ideas. So cognitivism is the idea that the growing and maturing brain can better engage with the environment that it's in. Constructivism is child constructing their identity and their understanding through the environment that they're in. And then social constructivism takes that a stage further and goes that children um, construct their identity and construct their learning around the social environments, around the other children that they're with in class, around their parents, um, around their friends, etc, etc. We've also today discussed with Muddy the difference between um, children and adults, which has been really interesting in terms of learning, in terms of that development. And we've had a chat about Moliere. So we've been quite an intellectual breakfast this morning, uh, and I have really enjoyed myself. I hope that you all have too. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. My thanks, as always, go out to the friends of the show today, to Tim and to Maddie, who have both texted in, who have both engaged. Thank you very much. I am the only Teacher Talk radio show on this Saturday, so please do go back and check out the back catalogue, not just of my shows, but of everything that we have to offer here on Teacher Talk radio. Um, you can access our back catalogue anywhere that podcasts are found. There's so many hours of fascinating content to listen to. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend and you will join me for breakfast next Saturday where we will be talking part two 
of constructivism. Thank you very much. Have yourselves a great week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.